My name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Today on Pros and Content, the penultimate entry in our 10-part series of online roundtables focusing on COVID-19. Over nine weeks, we've invited panels of inspiring speakers to talk about reactions and responses from different industries, countries, businesses, and individual perspectives. No two have been alike. Everyone has faced a unique battle during these past few months. And while these roundtables have wound down, we continue to seek and participate in honest and open conversations. Today's conversation focuses on the road ahead. Our guests today admit that while the journey may be long and sometimes difficult, we can now at least see the light. This episode was recorded on May 14th, 2020. We hope you enjoy. So hi, Rachel. Here we are. We're like my final day in Manhattan and our second to last webinar. And should we do the last webinar together, socially distanced? Because you're coming to where I am. I know. No, I think we should shake it up. Keep, keep it fresh. I'm yeah. excited to interview everyone with you. That would be fun. So I think today the most important thing, there's kind of two big changes. The first one is we went from saying, okay, let's talk about navigating COVID to actually saying, okay, let's talk about the road ahead. And part of it is because for the last two weeks, we've been talking about how we are sick of talking about COVID. So I think if we're finally in a place where whether it's brands, humans, politicians, companies in general, everyone just wants to figure out how do we move ahead and, and what do we do in this new normal? Um, so I, want, I would love to kind of focus the conversation on that today. And then second, Rachel and I decided to keep things fun. We're both going to interview everyone. Um, and that doesn't mean it's tougher because we're both great interviewers and very friendly. So don't worry about anything, but we're going to keep it um, a lot more interactive today. So Rachel, in terms of the road ahead, I would love to hear a couple of your thoughts and I'll just share my personal observations. Last week, I think I came into the webinar and I said, it's the first time that I feel angry. I felt like anxious and uh, because there wasn't a true exit plan for, for this crisis, I started getting angry at the lockdown. And I think this week um, I've kind of become grateful. I don't know if this is like stages of grief or something, but I've become grateful for the things that um, I don't have to do anymore. I started realizing that around this time I'd start to get anxiety about Khan. Um, and the fact that I don't have to go to Khan this year makes me very happy. The fact that we can do virtual events like this and connect with people we didn't know before and actually build true kind of conversations and connections also makes me happy. And the fact that this platform has enabled both of us to build this community and momentum from literally nothing, which would not have been possible just from a real event standpoint. So overall feeling grateful this week for the things that I do have, but would love to hear how you're doing. Um, I'm a lot of things, but overall, well, uh, it's so funny. I actually forgot that can exist. Con can. I'm from New Jersey, so I never say anything right. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I thought I would actually pull some data because I, I think it's interesting how it's still so polarizing what's going on in our industry. I don't know if you saw this article. The Drum came out with it this week. It's data from the World Federation of Advertisers, WFA. 
And 62% of marketers still feel it's critical for brands to not go dark during this period. But there's been dramatic cuts to ad spend in April. And people are forecasting that this same outlook is going to happen for the next six months. So it's interesting how polarizing that data is that marketers feel, no, you should keep spending, yet people are continuing to cut back on spend. Uh, for the most part at Micmac, we've seen like most of the marketers that took pause in March have turned back on. And we've validated that with the social platforms too. It's not just what we're seeing. But I also thought um, there's been some interesting e-com stats that we were seeing at Micmac that's also been validated. Uh, New York Times came out with a great article this week. I don't know if everyone read it. There's Instacart and then everyone else. Um, but I thought I'd share some of it because it's the same stuff that we're seeing. In the online grocery space, Instacart is outperforming everyone and everyone is inclusive of Walmart, Amazon, and Target. In the meal delivery space, DoorDash is the clear winner, followed by Uber Eats, but there's a huge gap between the two. And then video games, one of the top selling items, obviously, during COVID, uh, and not just with teenagers, plenty of uh, middle-aged women are playing video games too right now. GameStop is the number one retailer, followed by Best Buy. So in terms of the road ahead, I'm going to be paying attention if market share domination continues. Uh, everything I just said um, is US in terms of retail. The advertising stats is global. Um, so with that, Let's hear it from the marketers themselves and dive in. So for no, folks- I'm excited. I just wanted to add one more thing that today we have a really interesting diversity in the panel. We have one of the biggest technology companies. We have one of the biggest pharma and kind of health companies. We have uh, the president of Time. We have the president of the Ad Council. We have a lot of different interesting opinions. So I'm curious to hear how all these different industries are navigating um, the road ahead. So I'll turn it over to you to introduce our first speaker. Yeah, and before I do that, um, everyone, there's a Q&A function. Please post your questions there. Throughout the, uh, the next two hours, we'll take questions from the audience. So we have uh, a special guest hailing from London. Good evening, Christoph. How are you? Hello, good evening. I'm, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Um, doing great. Uh, Anda and I are so excited to have you. And so you're the CMO uh, of the global brands at Walgreens Boots Alliance. And it's funny, obviously we at Micmac do work with you guys and folks always ask me like, wait, isn't that a retailer, not a brand? And I'm like, no, 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 they actually have a house full of brands. Um, and so I'm excited for you to tell everyone more about that. Before you were at P&G, so you, know, you have so much experience in terms of supply chain, managing P&L, go to market, and a lot of the brands that you represent have probably experienced enormous amount of growth at this time. So I'm really excited for Anza and I to pick your brain in terms of how you've been navigating this pandemic globally for your brands. Yeah, and thank you. And, and maybe indeed to introduce a little bit more about the group because I think many people are familiar with Walgreens, but maybe less familiar with Walgreens Boots Alliance as, as the group. Uh, it's kind of the group that sits above uh, Walgreens. So of course we have our US pharmacy operations which run under the name uh, you know, Walgreens, Duane Reed, still some Rite Aid stores. Uh, but then we have our, our pharmacies uh, you know, in many, many countries, uh, mainly called Boots, but we also have in Chile, Ahumada, Benavides. Uh, so that's kind of our pharmacy business. 
Then we have, we're actually uh, one of the largest wholesale pharmacy uh, companies as well, and it's called Alliance Healthcare. So that's the Alliance in the name. And then we have uh, our brands and our products, uh, which we call the global brands uh, part of the business. And that's the bit that I run uh, within WBA. But of course, all of those uh, parts of the group all work together uh, in close collaboration. And indeed, and we've seen very different dynamics across the group because we, you know, we have business in China, in Korea, we have business in Latin America, we have business in Europe, uh, and, and we have, of course, business in the US. So, you know, you, you almost saw that wave coming <laughs> as, as it was coming in. Uh, and, and we've learned a lot, actually, from our Asian colleagues on how they've actually uh, dealt with the crisis. And there's ups and there's downs, you know, that some bits of the business are doing well, other bits are, are not doing so well, because we also have a beauty part of the business. And, and, you know, the, the brands part that I'm responsible for is kind of splits in two bits. One is what uh, I would call our private label brands. So particularly healthcare, et cetera. So everything that runs under Walgreens logo. But then indeed to what you're saying, we actually actually have a stable of beauty brands like Number 7, Liz Earl, Soap and Glory that we sell in our own retail, but also outside of our own retail. So I, I trade with Target, with Ulta, et cetera, which is an interesting dynamic you get in the group because I'm actually dealing uh doing business with some of our key competitors uh so yeah so it's it's an it's an interesting portfolio to kind of see how the the, the crisis has impacted uh different parts of the business but the one thing that i would say that unifies us is you know the, the whole purpose and you can see it on our website is, is about helping people live happier and healthier lives and i think that purpose has never rung more true than during these times because you know we have our pharmacists who are truly at the front line uh, dealing with our customers. Uh, we have Alliance Healthcare holding uh, or keeping uh, the world in supply of essential medication. Uh, you know, we have uh, our Boots and Walgreens, both the UK and the US have drive-through COVID test centers. So, you know, and our colleagues are just um, doing an amazing job in terms of, uh, you know, keeping all of that going and, and doing an incredible job during these very difficult times. Uh, so I guess that's the, that's the element that's in common. Uh, I think, you know, how we've been going through the crisis, I would say it's probably three phases. I think the first, first phase was probably making sure that everybody was healthy, including our, our store staff, uh, our, our colleagues in the head offices, as well as our, uh, you know, for our customers who enter in our stores. And, you know, there was a lot of work to be done because, you know, the, the moment that that hits you, uh, you need to find PPE, you need to find plexiglass, you need to find all of those things to keep people safe, both ourselves, our customers. Things like, you know, testers in store, you need to take them all away because you don't want people to, you know, multi-use testers. Uh, so it's all of these things that you've never even, you know, thought about that you need to make an intervention in. Um, it, it's quite incredible. But, you know, the, the team did that in an incredibly fast pace. Uh, so that was probably the first stage, which is making sure everything is safe. <laughs> the second, uh, and that probably took us about two weeks to get to grip with that, including having people work from home, you know, upgrade your IT infrastructure, all of those things. I think the second stage was more about doing good, which I think is, is important now, but I think uh, will continue to be important as a brand. Um, you know, we, we have several partnerships that we already had, but we doubled down on those. For example, we have a partnership with one of my brands with the Hygiene Bank uh, here in the UK. What they do is they basically give products uh, to, to people in need, uh, beauty products to people in need, particularly around hygiene, so soaps and stuff like that. 
And so we've basically given them 200,000 products to distribute among people in need because of, of course, hygiene is an important uh, uh, aspect now, as well as, uh, you know, to, 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 cr to critical workers. And, and that, that's been a, an amazing, amazing effort by, by the collective uh, group. But I think we're now in stage three, which is how do we drive growth? <laughs> because, mm -hmm. I mean, I would say stage two remains valid and remains important, and we're continuing to do efforts in that space. But now it's all about how, how do we drive growth in the current environment? And, and you know, um, go ahead. How, yeah, and how is the growth being driven in countries that have started to reopen versus countries that are still in lockdown? Yeah, in lockdown, and, you know, you mentioned a few stats as well. Uh, today, I, I saw stats on beauty, for example. Uh, whilst beauty before was about 30-ish, a little bit more percent uh, of online sales, that's gone now to 45%. Uh, right, and and so now it's interesting. So we see some rebounds in certain categories, but uh, some categories like uh, if I look at Asia, for example, cosmetics hasn't fully rebounded. Skincare has nearly rebounded. Hair care, so probably because people didn't wash their hair when they were in lockdown as much. So hence, all of a sudden, they all rush to the store to get uh, shampoos and whatever have you. We only wash uh, our hair for webinars on the there, there you go. <laughs> so, so we've definitely seen different dynamics uh, as, as we go here. But there is, there is a few things that, that are there to stay because even if you think about it, um, when you, you go into uh, a store, it won't, it won't be the same until there's a vaccine and this whole thing is gone because there's still social distancing. Uh, I don't think uh, you'll feel comfortable, even if it's allowed, for a beauty advisor to start touching your face and doing a makeover and all of those things. And of course, our store staff and our colleagues are uh, wearing all of the protective equipment and all of those things, but customers are still not very keen. So, so that's where I do think, you know, we've now moved, uh, we've moved that incredibly click, quickly, actually, as part of that growth phase uh, to, to provide beauty services online. I mean, our objective is anything, because we have counter operations on number seven, for example, we have our beauty counters. But we say every service you could get at one of our counters, you can now get it uh, virtually. Now, in the beginning, it's a bit more low tech, where it's just an appointment booking system and you get a video conference call uh, either on FaceTime or on uh, you know, Teams or whatever uh, to get your beauty makeover and tutorial and masterclass, uh, you know, but uh, that includes then uh, a little, actually in, in a few weeks, includes diagnostics and all of those things that normally you would have only had in store, but now you can get them virtually to get to the right product uh, for your needs. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I do think that is there to stay uh, for the foreseeable future uh, and, and, you know, some of these social distancing measures and how they how they impact on how we you know how we treat our, our customers and how we help our customers mm -hmm. christoph it sounds like from a uh road ahead standpoint you're doubling down on digital beauty i don't know if uh, you call it that but um basically trying to not only sell the products but also consult the the folks buying the product online are you also thinking about doubling down on more paid and performance marketing? Have you pulled back during the crisis? Yeah, so, I mean, and, and of course we have full funnel marketing, including TV and, and the whole lot. Um, actually, the one thing I haven't pulled back on is actually what I would call performance marketing in the sense that, you know, one of the advantages of me being a CPG, uh, if you want, within a retailer, is that I have access to tons of first-party data mm -hmm. uh, through our retailer network, and then we work with, 
companies like Micmac uh, for, for everything that we don't have access to. But then you have also, uh, you know, uh, we don't deal with Walmart, uh, but, you know, Walmart has a media company, Tar we have Target Media Group, uh, all of those where you can truly, you know, live see whether your uh, marketing is, is converting. We've kept it all. Uh, where we've cut is actually on the mass marketing. Uh, so, you know, TV, uh, outdoor, there's nobody outside, uh, you know, all of those things we've cut um, and we've cut for the foreseeable future until we see a significant improvement. Um, but where we've doubled down and actually increased investment in many cases <clears throat> is in, you know, uh, performance marketing, online paid social, those kind of things where we've actually increased investment. And I saw some numbers today, actually, it was a UK number. Um, on, on one of those campaigns that we've switched on, we saw a return on ad spend, a ROAS of nearly $10 on the product that we were advertising. And on the basket uh, in, in Boots, we saw a $45 ROAS. So if you put $1 down, you get 45 back. That seems like a pretty good investment to me. So, so yeah, we're definitely doubling down on that. Now, it creates a few challenges in terms of getting the content out there because, of course, uh, we have our in-house studios. Those, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> had to shut down. But we set up, uh, you know, photographers who've converted their bedrooms in uh, temporary studios and we set them up with all of the products uh, to still be able to create the assets that we need uh, to, to go live uh, as part of Performance Month. Well, thank you for ending on a really hopeful note and for sharing your thoughts. Um, please stay on because we're going to start doing some Q&As in a bit. But I want to get to the next couple of speakers because I know they have a hard stop. Um, Keith, I want to welcome you. You are actually, believe it or not, the first publisher, quote unquote, slash media company that we have on the webinar. So welcome, Keith. I got a lot of pressure now, I guess. I know. <laughs> well, I wanted to make today um, a conversation really kind of that spans different industries. Um, Keith, I know you're, you know, I don't know if you want to be called a veteran, but I, I know you've spent uh, quite a few years at Condé Nast um, and then you went to Bloomberg. Now you're at Time. Um, you heard some of the stats that Rachel was sharing around the cut in advertising spend. But at the same time, what I'm seeing on my side is that more and more brands are doubling down on content and turning to, to partners who actually know how to make content, especially during a time like this, when they have to execute so quickly. So I'm curious, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in your world and how are you navigating them? Sure. So um, first, you know, thank you so much for having me on, both of you. Um, uh, as I had mentioned to you before, I, I'm blown away by just how many people I know that are on this right now. And I was looking at the list and it's really amazing. And, uh, um, you know, one of the things that I think, Rachel, you said in the beginning that I think is very real, but has been going on for a very long time is uh, what I would say is the bifurcation of the industry, right? So, you know, you either go into this industry on the publishing side and it's either the best of times or it's the worst of times. And if you were coming into the industry um, prior to what I would say is um, March with a faulty business model or one that hadn't proven itself out in some sense whatsoever, or you don't have what is, I would say, an irrational support structure behind you, um, uh, then what you find is is that you're really probably not going to make it through this moment in time um, it, the same way that you entered into it. Um, and it's going to be very scary for a lot of people. And it's unfortunate. It's it's really, um, it's it's a uh, accelerated sort of pace of change that will take place, I would say, over the coming months. Um, I think for us at time, you know, we're in a unique position. 
Um, uh, and first, I apologize for my attire today. As I had mentioned, I'm upstate at my mother-in-law's house, and I brought only three T-shirts, and they're all time for kids' T-shirts. So I look like I'm wearing the same thing every day. How but, um, <laughs> but, but, um, but I think what you're seeing on the on the on our side is is that. Um, when we're engaging with partners and we're evolving our brand and we're thinking about how we're coming to market, um, we're really looking at um, two sort of lenses in which we bring ideas to market or in which we um, you know, are directing our organization holistically from an editorial um, uh, and product direction. Um, one is through the lens of value, the other is through what I would say is the lens of utility. Um, in my mind, like if you can't deliver value or utility at this moment in time, like there's no media out there, right? It's like, it's literally dried up. And so by utility, what I mean is, um, you know, and this is a selfish example, but I could give it from just the fact that I'm so into it. Uh, on March 23rd, uh, we made Time for Kids uh, free. Uh, we digitized it, we made it for free. For 25 years up to that point, it was a US-based print product that only existed in, in classrooms. On March 23rd, it went for free. We made it global. And as of this morning, over 310,000 people have downloaded uh, Time for Kids throughout the world. Um, we made it free available last week in Spanish. This is the first time it's ever been provided in another language. Why did we do that? Um, the challenge that we saw was, I have a six-year-old daughter. Her name is Ellie, right? She's at home. My wife is homeschooling her with her teachers over Zoom, um, she needs some sort of trusted new sort of uh, uh, content that, that is age appropriate. And so what we saw was the opportunity to provide a, a true value or a utility to parents and teachers and students at a time where they needed it the most. In the same way, Christoph, as you said, you know, you cut outdoors because no one's outside. Like we know that parents needed this and teachers needed this at home. Um, from a perspective of value, I think what we started to do is we started to outline what we thought were the phases of this, this moment in time. Um, I would be lying in any sense whatsoever if I said I knew exactly how I was navigating this moment. I think uh, uh, everyone in, in, my, in my position or who's been in this industry has navigated a financial sort of setback. Everyone has navigated maybe a small health hiccup, maybe a little bit of a political instability, but major global uh, health pandemic followed by a, you know, a, a severe recession or depression followed by global political unrest at the same time is something new, I think, to all of us, right? So, Anda, to your point, um, being frustrated is, is part of, is like, is so natural and understandable, right? I wake up days where I'm, I'm so frustrated too. And I think what we did was we looked at the world and we said, okay, from a psychological perspective, um, uh, in the beginning, people need to know a certain types of information. Like in the beginning, March 23rd, up till maybe now, maybe a little bit not now, people needed to know what is this virus? What's happening in the world? How do I adjust from living from home? How do, I, um, uh, how do I balance my life? How do I take care of all of these different sort of aspects that I never had to think about? My child's in the next room. I have to get school going. I have to get work going. Do I need to buy a desk? How do I actually operate with the family around? 
as you enter out of that phase and you move to what is probably where we're in between now, people start moving into this motion where CEOs start saying stuff like, how do I get my employees either back to work if it's a global sort of scenario in certain countries, not all countries and not all places? How do I um, either sustain mental wellness for people, which is why you start seeing this come up over and over and over again. Um, if you're an employee, like I think a lot of employees want to know, how do I actually have some sort of control back in my life? And so by value, what we're thinking about is, is every program or partnership or piece of editorial content that we're providing, it tries to solve what we feel are those key questions at that moment in time. And so the trick for us, and it's not really a trick, I think it's the wrong word, but has been how do we evolve as nimbly and as quick as possible at each moment? And as we start to see sort of the moment shift, how do we then quickly stop doing things that worked in the first phase, but that might not provide the same value in the second phase and start to shift resources towards those next phases? That makes sense. Um, Rachel, I know you wanted to ask a quick question and I'll let you take that and then we'll move on to Alicia. Yeah, I mean, Keith, with, uh, you know, TV sponsorship dollars disappearing, less event opportunities, as you reforecast your business for the second half of 2020 and going into 2021, like what new opportunities do you think marketers are going to be craving? Sure. Um, I mean, it, it's, you know, there's many different perspectives that you could take on what the second half of of the year will look like. Um, I, my advice to to everyone, whether I I know you or I don't know you, or whether you care or you don't care, has been like I don't think that there's visibility into the second half of the year, and uh, I think that there's a lot of unknowns that people um, are facing right now. And you know, this is not a new normal anymore, right? Like, and this is not the normal anymore. It's kind of like the now normal right now, right? Because tomorrow will be totally different than what it is today. And, you know, it all comes down to, I guess, how you're thinking about the world and where you're thinking uh, things are gonna happen, right? If you think a vaccine's gonna happen sooner, then you have different opportunities that you're gonna plan for than if you think it's happening later. The reality is, is that there was a lot of excitement about vaccines coming out uh, as early as you know September, and some people were saying the summer, but the reality is, is that the fastest vaccine to ever come to market, I believe, was mumps, and it took four years, right? Um, we did a piece on um, smallpox, and it took 37 years on smallpox, but they're breaking every rule and, and changing everything to get a vaccine out faster. And I think Lena would probably speak faster and better about this marketplace than I could ever speak. But um, that being said, the reason I bring it up is, is I don't think that there's really any visibility in the second half of the year. I think people who are projecting a V-shape recovery are overly optimistic. I think people who are projecting a U-shape uh, recovery are uh, potentially overly optimistic. Um, you know, uh, so I think that what you really have to do as a marketer or as a brand today is think about your next 90 days and constantly reevaluate. And, you know, the idea that I never thought I would, I, would, I would say this, I never thought I'd quote Mike Tyson in front of, you know, 200 people, but he has this great quote that, you know, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And I think that, you know, that's what you really have to face today, which is um, you, you could think you have a plan, 
but you don't. You have to survive the next 90 days. And if you if your plan is I'm giving up the next 90 days to focus on the second half of the year, the overwhelming odds are that you probably won't make it to the second half of the year. And I think that that's a pretty scary statement, but I think that that's the urgency by which people should be operating. And I think that that's, it's a very serious, scary, sad moment in time. Um, uh, Keith, I wanted, can... to, I wanted to just jump in because um, I want to make sure that we, we get to Alicia. I know she has to drop off really soon. Um, and I also want to ask her a couple of questions because I know that um, in many ways, technology companies, at least some of them or some of their products are actually seeing a bit of a counter cycle movement where the digital transformation that a lot of other companies are now uh, forced to go through is actually making um, the technology companies, especially the big technology companies who offer holistic solutions, very relevant. So Alicia, welcome. I wanted to uh, make sure that we have time to have a quick chat. Um, hopefully you can, you can hear us. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes. I love the flowers behind you. They're great. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, Alicia, just real quick before I ask you my first question, um, I don't think I shared this with you recently, but we were auditing a lot of the content efforts, and you were actually the the first technology company to actually create branded content around COVID. Um, and second, you were the first to create branded content around going back to the new normal. So I wanted to congratulate you on that, um, and also just ask you how this time has been, and you know, are you as um, pessimistic as Keith, are you as, are you a little bit more optimistic about where things are headed? I'm, I'm gonna... oh, I love it. So first off, I love Keith's comments and, you know, he's, he's provided such a great balance for, for how we need to think about, um, this situation that we're in. I mean, look, it's been crazy times. Um, when I think back to the beginning of the year, Certainly when we were ready to, to fully charge ahead with all of the elements of our marketing and brand strategy, um, and we had so many things planned, and then who knew that at the beginning of March, we were going to be canceling every event that we had, really needing to think completely differently about where we were investing and how we were prioritizing. It's it's been crazy, but it's, it's also been motivating and inspiring too at the same time because it has really caused us to almost think across everything we do in our business about what really matters right now based on what our customers need, how do we help with business continuity, and how do we help them, which is the period we're in right now, think about getting back to work. And, you know, we immediately jumped into high gear from the beginning. I mean, we're a global technology company. You know, we have portfolios of solutions that span every C-level executive in a company that is basically focused on helping organizations run at their best. And immediately we looked at what was needed at the beginning of this crisis. And it was things such as, how to keep people safe if they still need it to be on the road, to how to support the supply and demand crisis to help people maintain continuity in their supply chains, to what are the types of insights that employers need to know how to help people working productively from home. 
but how do we help our state and local governments get the right testing equipment um, to the individuals that you know were experiencing the COVID illness? And so across all of those um, different areas of focus, we put forward technology in the SAP portfolio. SAP portfolio. Some of it was technology we had. Some of it was technology that we created very quickly um, to really help um, be as relevant as possible. All together, we put out 15 different offers, offering free access to come into our network to help connect buyers um, to where the demand sources are so that supplies um, could be flowing through the supply chain more frequently, to getting uh, all of the insights you need to help your employees be as productive as possible as they shift to working from home. And so, you know, we, we, we worked fast um, and it was chaotic, certainly in the beginning. I wouldn't say it's, I mean, we've got some process, you know, around the chaos now, but it was about listening quickly, reacting quickly, focusing on relevance, and just doing everything possible to help and looking at how, te how technology could do that. So Alicia, that, that's, it's awesome to hear that you managed to galvanize the company to do all those different things all at once. From a marketing standpoint, what did you decide to lean into? What did you decide to stop investing in? Yeah, so, um, you know, look, I, I have, um, you know, a, a global marketing organization. I've got marketers across 180 countries who are servicing customers across 25 industries and a global customer base of over 500,000 customers. And, um, you know, to, to understand what we needed to prioritize and stop doing, it was hard. Um, and it still remains hard. I will tell you, this is not a decision that we made nine weeks ago. This is what we're gonna stop for the year and everything just now moves in, in this direction. This has been a journey that we are on and we've had to stop, prioritize, reprioritize, pivot, move in another direction constantly. Um, in the beginning, it was day to day. Now I feel like it's more week to week. Um, you know, we stopped all big campaigns this year we focused more on targeted types of marketing to really help certain customers, depending on the industry that they're in, because we have found that various industries have needed different things during this period. So really prioritizing targeted marketing during this period is, is where we really went. And then we put awareness around all of the offerings that were particularly free that gave people access in which you did not need to be a customer of SAP because we just wanted to focus on where we could help as the first priority. Um, and so this sort of business as usual, um, typical things that we've needed to do, all of our events were canceled. You know, these are thousands of events. We've pivoted everything to digital um, like most companies have. So we put a, a lot of investment there from a marketing perspective targeted um, based campaigns focused on the specific offers that we have that target a particular industry and our awareness efforts have been entirely focused on those um, products and services in our portfolio that we're giving away for free. So I'm curious, you're obviously a massive event organizer. Um, 
what happens to those dollars? Do you redistribute them? Um, do you do you just keep your powder dry for later in the year when it makes sense to maybe bring them back? Yeah, I mean, I mean, events is an interesting world. I mean, I will say, I mean, a lot of our costs were already sunk. You know, I mean, this is the week where uh, we would have we would have had our our largest Sapphire Now conference. Um, you know, we canceled that uh, 90 days before the event was to happen, you know, and when you have an event of 30,000 people at that size, canceling just a, a few months before it's set to happen, you lose a lot of money. Um, and we did. Um, and we were prepared for that because, um, you know, it was about safety. It was about responsibility. And, you know, we made the call financially. It was a tough call to make. Um, and in some cases, you know, we're, we're able to, to recover some of the costs, but in a lot of cases, we're not. And so what we've needed to do is then create incremental investment on top of that to fund all of the new digital uh, strategies that we have. And so, you know, I would have loved to have said that, you know, we had a windfall of money because of all the cancellation of events that happened. That was absolutely not the case. And so one of the reasons why I needed to reprioritize so many things in the portfolio is to fund, you know, not only the sunk costs that we had on the event side, but to actually fund then all of the new digital strategies that we had to build on top of it. So that was a, a big reason needed for the reprioritization as well, because events is a really strong, is a big tactic that we have in the portfolio. I mean, that's pretty typical in the B2B space generally. Um, and, you know, getting people online, you know, pretty immediately uh, is what we've been focused on. And we've needed the money to be able to shift around the portfolio to be able to do that. Thank you, Alicia, for, for uh, sharing that. It's, it's good to hear some uh, very kind of genuine, vulnerable words as well. Um, it's definitely a, it's been a hard time for, I think, all events marketers, but also B2B marketers because we're so dependent from a lead generation standpoint on events, but it's really great to see how quickly you've been able to pivot. Um, I know you have to jump off. Thank you so much for Thank being you here. Thank for having me. No, it's great. Thanks everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, Keith, I wanted to just take a couple of minutes, first of all, to tell you that Philip said that you have a great t-shirt um, oh, in the you. Q and A box. Um, and to also, one, apologize because I cut you off, two, no. um, I wanted to to just go back to the point that you were making around the V-shaped versus the U-shaped um, and just to hear kind of how you think things are going to evolve. And then the question from Philip in particular is when you talk about how businesses will come through this, what do you mean by an irrational support structure? Sure. So, you know, um, uh, by so first off, Philip, thank you for all the questions and thank you for all the compliments. Uh, this is the only shirt I have. And, and while... I was um, listening to Alicia. I saw the numerous comments of people saying, I can't believe you're not in a suit um, uh, and that my hair is not as bad as I keep making it out to be. Um, why, I'm just curious, why do you only have three t-shirts with you? Like how, how long did you think you were going to stay? I'll, if you want the answer that my wife gave me, she just said I packed like an idiot. And I think... I think that, you know, some people have some really good qualities, like uh, I'm a complete loser where and like my focus is work and I like reading. Um, I'm completely inept when it comes to certain things like um, common sense and packing and stuff of that nature. So, um, you know, like I have certain certain really good skills and certain bad ones. 
Um, I, I, I would go to Philip's comment about irrational. So a few things. One is uh, the irony is I'm actually quite optimistic about our business, but I'm very pessimistic about the state of the world. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a very sad, scary moment in time. And I think that people who can see, uh, you know, positivity through it, I admire that. But I think that, you know, when you look at unemployment numbers and you look at what's happening, I think it's a really scary, sad, awful moment in time. And that, that's where my pessimism comes into play. Um, my optimism is in the brands that can make it through this moment. And, um, you know, there, there are, there are uh, to Rachel, I think Rachel brought up just an absolutely fascinating point. And I think everyone should read the articles that she referenced because it's very true. Um, last year on January 1st, I wrote like a, a piece that I published nowhere other than my LinkedIn that, that stated like, hey, this is how a publisher has to think about the industry. And, um, and in it, I started with a quote from Dickens where I said, you know, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. And I sort of walked through the whole paragraph, the whole first paragraph of A Tale of Two Cities, which is a great representation of what the media landscape looks like today. And so if you're in a position where it's the best of times, it's a great business to be in. And it's really a fun business. And that's why I'm optimistic about that. If you're on the worst of times end of this, it's a really scary business to be in. And when I say irrational, what I mean is, is um, two things. Um, I mean irrational because you either have the market share already established and your monopolistic sort of position in a place, not calling it a monopoly, but your, your secured position in a place like the way the New York Times is with subscriptions. Um, it is, is a huge advantage that very few people would be able to get into. So that's irrational and you get to go into the marketplace, into this headwind with what is an annuity, right? Because on the media side of the business, there's only two business models when you break it down. You either make episodic revenue, which is B2B revenue through marketers, or annuity revenue, which is most oftentimes subscriptions of some sort. When I also mean irrational, what I mean is, is that there is a, um, a source funding your ability to navigate this moment in time that might not necessarily um, allow for your brand to um, uh, do what it's doing if it didn't have that source. And so if you look at the Washington Post, you know, they have Bezos. And if you look at, you know, even when I was at Bloomberg, right, like I was very fortunate, we were part of Bloomberg Media, which had the overarching terminal, and the terminal helped us support a lot of the evolution. And here, you know, I'm in a moment of time where, while um, we are a private asset of Mark and Lynn Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, we're not a philanthropic organization, right, we have to be run a good business. But like some of the moments where I can come in and say, I see opportunity here, invest in us, let us lean into this, this trend, um, we're getting the support that we need. And so what we're not doing is, is we're not thinking about like how do we survive the next week or so, but I'm rather like I'm thinking about how do I repivot this brand for the next hundred years? And you know, coming into this, we had a tremendous game plan. What this has actually done for us as accelerate the pace of change that we've applied to the time brand. Um, a good stat to give here is, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges I knew I was going to have coming into this role was everyone saying to me, congratulations, 
let me tell you what this brand means to me, and then saying Time Magazine and evolving Time Magazine to Time, the brand. Um, in the month of March, while everyone might have seen growth in their, their digital sites, I mean, we saw such growth on time.com, such growth in our social, such growth in our, in our um, video views, that even when it comes back down to normalization, it's actually changed the consumption patterns and the um, understanding of our brand to such a large community. And so- you keep No, these insights are incredible. Um, and without a doubt, Time is going to stand the test of time. Um, but I want to move to Lisa because I also know that she has a hard stop. Can uh, I just one thing, Rachel, just as a yeah. thank you? I have a hard stop. I don't want to look rude coming off. So thank you so much for having me on this. And, uh, and I appreciate it. And Lisa, I'm sorry I miss yours, but have a great one. And Jill, great to see you. Andrew, great to see you. Bye. Stopping. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Keith. So Lisa Sherman, uh, president and CEO of the Ad Council, who's doing some incredible work uh, right now, really addressing a lot of the uh, social issues that are arising. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. You know I do whatever you ask me to, Rachel. Thank <laughs> you for inviting me. And uh, congratulations on this incredible series. I, you've had such amazing lineups. I think you guys have a future as talent bookers if you need to think about reinventing. Yeah, oh, I know, I know. We found a new career. Well, uh, we want to pick your brain because you have such an amazing bird's eye view across the industry. And so we're, you know, nearly three months into COVID. And I'd love for you to share with everyone some of the social issues that the Ad Council has already been addressing. Happy to do that. You know, um, just to take a, a step back, the Ad Council um, our mission is to take on the most important issues facing the country. So we were wired for crisis. In fact, our founding during World War II was the ultimate crisis. Um, and, and many today are, are referencing this moment in time to, we, we haven't seen anything like this since World War II. There'll be before World War II and after World War II, like there'll be before COVID and after COVID. Um, so the minute that the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic, we knew we had to jump in. We were connected immediately to our partners at the CDC. And within about five days, we stood up three or four different messaging streams, getting fact-based messaging uh, to the public around um, hygiene, social distancing, a term we'd never heard of, frankly, until now, um, and really focusing on high-risk communities and audiences. Um, we quickly then knew that we had to jump in and support the efforts of food banks because the hunger situation in the country grew dramatically very fast. Um, Keith was talking about, you know, his wife homeschooling their kids. We had some messaging targeting parents, you know, working parents um, really were struggling during those early days of the crisis. And I would, I was, I'm happy to say that we were able to quickly get all of that out there in the course of one or two weeks. And we were supported by the extraordinary talents and resources and generosity of our industry. Just to give you some context, in the last six weeks, our industry has contributed $175 million in donated media. And with that media, our messages have been viewed over 8 billion times. And so the messages are getting out there they, we were able to scale very quickly. But I think even Christoph talked about crisis in three phases. And 
think that's how we're thinking about it too. There's the crisis phase and just talked a little bit about that. We're pivoting now, I think, to, and we're in a transition period towards what I think about as a recovery phase. And we're starting to see the impact of this pandemic, which is both a health crisis and an economic crisis, and new issues are emerging. So mental health is a huge issue. Depression, anxiety, which were already on the rise now that people are cooped up at home and isolated and anxious and worried, that becomes even more critical. Xenophobia. I mean, the, the impact of, of racism and discrimination that we're starting to, that we have seen from the beginning is another issue that we're leaning into heavily. We've got 30 plus million people who have applied for unemployment um, over the last month. So we're focused on a, a, new, a new piece of work on job reskilling. How do we train a workforce who's looking for work? We had originally talked about doing an effort around reskilling, trying to get people to think about sort of new technology jobs where there were more jobs than people. And we just, you know, put a pin in it, took two weeks to think about what that meant today. And we're going out in a couple of weeks with new work that really focuses uh, more on what the current situation is. And then as we move to the third phase, rebuilding probably a year from now, if we're lucky, um, we're going to have to have and offer tremendous help to um, those most at risk, especially communities of color and low-income families who are always sort of disproportionately affected by issues like this. So we got a lot of work to do, um, and I'm, I'm thrilled that we're able to do it with the support of our incredible industry who really has shown up in such magnificent ways. Um, no, that's, that's amazing, and that journey makes sense. How do you balance uh, things that you had planned? Because I'm sure the Ad Council is planning far in advance with all the change you just had to adapt to. So like everybody, you know, the minute this thing hits, uh, it was all hands on deck. We really stopped everything and focused exclusively on COVID. I, I'm so proud of my team. You know, people didn't have any pride of ownership. They just wanted to help. Um, and so, you know, we were fast, we were collaborative, we got stuff up quickly. And then when we had a minute to catch our breath and we looked at these other issues that I just talked about, we recognized that many of the issues are issues that we were already working on in some way, shape, or form, but we had to think about them through the lens of COVID. And we had to think about how we pivot slightly to make them as relevant as possible. So, for example, we've always, you know, those that are most at risk with, you know, underlying health issues um, has been an area of focus for COVID. Well, we've been working on campaigns like diabetes and, and um, high blood pressure um, for years. And so how do we communicate with people that are struggling with those issues in the time of COVID? And we're doing that with all, you know, our Love Has No Labels diversity and inclusion campaign is a longstanding campaign, but now we're focused on xenophobia as an aspect of that work. Um, and, and so, and then the third thing is just new work that we're going to have to bring on because it's new. It's just completely new. Awesome. Um, you talked about your team and in terms of like new ways of working, what have you learned about 
like the ad council's internal culture that you want to carry forward? So, you know, I, I think that um, I, I, we stood up, as I said, these, these multiple messaging streams in, in a ridiculously short amount of time, speed, open source, scale, agility. They were all things that we had been working on as part of our culture. Um, uh, and we're now about to go back and do some retrospectives before we lose track of all that we did and really understand what did we do? How can we accelerate those changes uh, and make them just part of our new normal? Um, mm -hmm. and, and so we're doing that work right now because we don't want to lose sight of what we did as we start to you know, shift a little bit towards the future. And then I think from a cultural standpoint, I mean, our culture has always been about transparency and communications. They've been cornerstones, empathy and kindness. And, you know, in a moment of crisis, I think they either show up or they don't. And to, so you really know how real you're mm -hmm. and how sort of grounded your culture is. And I have to say that our team and those attributes of our culture and our values showed up on steroids. Mm. It was just a pleasure to watch. Um, and I'm just, you know, incredibly proud of our team. And I think the level of generosity um, that they bring to everything they do. And of course, everyone's remote. Many of them are working parents, managing themselves, sick people, um, their work. And um, it's just been, it's just, it brings tears to my eyes, actually, when I think about it. Um, I'm looking at the questions from the group and thinking forward looking. You know, so much of uh, what you guys do is being able to disseminate these really powerful messages through advertising channels. Yep. Um, with uncertainty of when people are returning back to real life, um, looking at someone's question here, how do you think outdoor advertising is going to rebound? Well, I have to tell you that um, we've used a lot of out of home already. You know, we um, did a really beautiful campaign to support frontline workers and essential workers. And we were able through out of home, both digital and, and sort of standard out of home, place key messages in the right places where they were so that they could see them. And I do think that people are out and about. I, I, we've got folks who live in you know, Georgia and uh, Orlando, we were on a call the other day. And what I was surprised to hear was sort of a little bit worrisome, but the truth is it doesn't feel like there's any pandemic going on there. People are out there. And so I think that if they're gonna be out there, the use of the out of home platform is critical to ensure that messages continue to get seen and delivered to the right people at the right place and at the right time. Mm -hmm. um I think that's a good outlook. On that note, let's turn to grid view so we can take some questions from the group. All right, Anda, did you pull a favorite question? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually curious. We have some really great marketers here from very different domains. Um, I'm curious, what brands do you think are doing a good job with their content? Do you have any favorite... Um, or I guess maybe content or creative, however you want to interpret it. But I'm curious if you have any favorite ones. And you can also name yourself, obviously. Anyone? Rachel, do you have a favorite? Favorite content? 
I think some of the most brilliant things that have happened is when people have pulled out old ads, like what Budweiser did to just show how timeless advertising can be and how messaging can stay relevant. I also think it's good to show the reduction of waste in our industry um, because we've all become so reliant on original content productions. Yeah, that has been really interesting to see. I think, I think personally, there's been some great contents, but I would say for me, the late motif across uh, the advertising right now is actually what you started with, Anda, at the beginning of this conversation. We're actually kind of reached the COVID peak in terms of, you know, bombardment of, you know, uh, everything being COVID related. So I think the better brands are going to be the one that take the message and foster their own particular value proposition versus you know, just the a pivoting content to approach the current situation, because I think there's a, even from our media partners, there's just an overload of, um, you know, is all commercial breaks going to be about COVID related messaging? And, you know, there's only so much that you can do where, to where all different verticals are all starting to sound the same, I think. So I think there's just like a real hunger for like a higher level messaging across COVID, not to say that those creative executions are not valid, but I think we kind of overloaded them all together at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's, I think everyone was nodding their heads. So I think we're all in agreement there. Um, also curious around the stats that Rachel were, was sharing at the onset, we've asked a few other CMOs in the past, you know, are you going to be more active in H2? Are you going, going to be less active? Uh, initially, we got a lot of answers saying we're going to make more investments, we're going to be more active. Now, if Rachel's data is correct, it sounds like that might not necessarily be the case. So have the plans changed? Are brands continuing to not invest as much going forward? And what are you seeing on your side and across your peer set? I can, I mean, I can answer at least from, I think I have a, a slightly different view because of the vertical I mean and, and healthcare specifically. I think um, for us, we spent, as many of us on the call, we spent a lot of time proving the efficacy and efficiency of media campaigns and marketing campaigns and how it drives demand and it drives consumer behaviors. And in our ecosystem, in healthcare specifically, you know, consumer demand is driven by advertising, but at the same time, we don't have a point of purchase the same way a retailer would have. And so that decision, the purchase decision is made also through the healthcare professional and through the availability of the medicine on a formulary and on, a, uh, on an insurance formulary. So I think for us, um, a lot of what happened is not necessarily not a willingness to invest, it's just the pillars of our ecosystem have changed. So overnight, we found ourselves in a situation where, yes, media was very effective, the portfolio was highly optimized, we were driving a positive and great ROI and everything was working great. However, because it was working so great, we overnight found the ecosystem changed to where driving people into the doctor's office, first of all, became not safe and not responsible to do, frankly, for many situations, especially as a lot of our patient populations are immunodepressed to begin with. But secondly, even just from an economic perspective, it just that conversion couldn't happen because a lot of doctors were not seeing patients. So we kind of find ourselves in a situation that was counterintuitive to where we were having conversations to say, yeah, in some cases we're gonna cut investment, but we actually, because it works so well, that's exactly why in this crisis we have to cut. And it kind of goes back to what Keith was mentioning that none of us had a playbook on how to handle this because it's not an economic crisis. It's not only a health crisis and it's a crisis that continues to change 
the cards of the game and the rules of the games as it goes. And so for us, it just kind of became to say, you have to stop investing at some point because you're being so effective. And that effectiveness is driving people into a place that A, may not be safe for now, so it may not be responsible, but B, we also cannot in every case generate the conversion that we were generating before. That makes sense. Super interesting. Um, Christoph, I know you have a bunch of questions here, and I hope you don't mind that I'm picking this one. I think this is actually a great one for the group as well. Um, so it's pretty public that you've decided to go through an agency review. I remember I saw an article um, recently. Um, is this the best of times or the worst of times for, for an agency review? And why did you decide to do that now? Um, and would love to, by the way, hear, I don't, I don't know if, uh, I haven't read any news about Accenture or Eli Lilly uh, uh, doing an agency review, but let us know if that's in the box. Yeah, and clearly I, I can't comment <laughs> on, on the specifics of the review where I where I can comment is, you know, we, I think I mentioned it before as well. As a company, we are doubling down on on the digitization of our company, and we already have, uh, you know, publicly, you know, we have we have the partnerships with Microsoft uh, and, and and many others. Um, but I think you know it's it's really doubling down on our mass personalization uh, vision, which is all about right content, right place, right time. And enabling that through the right levers of Martech, you know, uh, content production. Uh, you know, we call it infant uh, content production, content publishing. Uh, you know, all of those things, and upgrading the capabilities of our organization so that we can truly start. Uh, you know, um, making that an engine whereby we, we move to true mass personalization rather than mass marketing. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a few good examples that we had recently, uh, great successes, whether it was with our flu campaign, uh, where, where, where we've seen some, some, some excellent results on the back of that. And I'm curious as a follow-up to that, because I see another question from Philip here, um, would also, uh, this is super relevant for, for both Jill and Lena as well. Um, how are you thinking about balancing driving growth and entering that phase with doing good? Um, yeah. Assuming you're not exiting the stage of doing good, but but it sounds like you're entering the stage of driving growth. Yeah, it, it's both actually, and that was you know if I think about the, the there's probably four things for my business that 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 you know this 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 Corona crisis impact as we go into the next stage. One is online is there to stay, you know, and that is both in in beauty and in healthcare. Uh, you know, we're looking at Find Care Now platform, those kind of things that are have seen an exponential growth of online uh, services, whether that's in healthcare or beauty. I think the, the second one is a recession. I mean, we, we talked about it, you know, reviewing your pack sizes, doubling down on own brand, private label. Those things are, are a massive impact to our business. Um, the, you know, healthcare is both physical health but also mental health uh, won't be the same. There's the emergence of new categories, PPE, mental health, anxiety, immunity, all of those things are just going to boost. And then the last thing I was going to say is purpose. You can't, um, you know, people just demand it. If you just go quiet and sit in a corner as a brand, uh, people are going to say, where were you when the proverbial S hit the fan? You know, and, and that's where I think brands need to show up now in the right way. And, and that is not going to go away uh, until this whole crisis has gone away. And even so I think br people will truly turn to brands that have done good 
that they remember have done good during this crisis. So that is there definitely. To stay. Well, it sounds like people will turn to brands that have done good, but also that were there and were present and were still putting media dollars behind uh, yeah. a message, whether or not it was a performance message. Yeah. Yeah. Jill, do you want to jump in? Yeah, just to add to that, I think that the society needs the good to happen in order for the growth to happen. And a lot of these companies and brands have great talents and bring great value. And right now, the people who work for those businesses and those brands also want to be doing the good. So all that purpose thing that was multiple stakeholder universe, and it was all kind of theory before COVID, and it's in practice right now. And I think the brands help remember who they are when they do the good side, but it also remember reminds them what they're good at that they can also do on the business growth, growth side. I love that. Um, Rachel, do you wanna call the poll in? Yeah, I was gonna say on that note, let's move to the poll. So folks on the line, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. When thinking about the way your company sells its products and our services online, which of the following do you expect your company to invest more in next year compared to this year? So will you be investing further in agencies? In headcount internally? In paid media spend? In technology? And if you're gonna spend less or equal, don't check the box. This is gonna be an interesting one. I can't wait to see. Mm -hmm. What did you put, Rachel? Did you vote? I'm actually going to go right now. I'm going to spend more. Oh, I know what I'm spending more in. All right. Boom. What is it? Tell me. I voted headcount. Oh, same. Where all my money goes. Yeah, all the money goes to headcount. Um, okay. Well, on that note, let's go back into speaker view. Um, I'm so excited to welcome our next speaker, Jill. Welcome. You've obviously already introduced yourself to the group, but welcome again. Thank you. Glad to be here. I've been trying to convince Jill to join for the past, how many weeks has it been? Seven? <laughs> I, finally, I finally managed to, after I texted her uh, enough times, she uh, gave in. So I'm super excited to have you on because you are one of those marketers who genuinely is both creative and data-driven and kind of equally so. Um, I remember the first time we met, we talked so extensively about the power of content. And I know Accenture, obviously, is one of those brands that just completely embraces thought leadership. Um, and I would love to hear from you, first and foremost, how has that evolved since the crisis? Um, you know, have you been really doubling down on that? Um, are, you, are you stepping out of it? Um, just curious to hear how your relationship with content has evolved. Yeah, no, it's amazing. You know, we're a big company um, with a lot of facets to what we do and the subjects we talk about. So. It's always been amazing. I've been at Accenture a little over four years now to watch what we can do. What's been really fascinating now is how we galvanize against a moment in time. So the content machine was focused and recalibrated very quickly to make sure that um, that everything was created, you know, met some key principles that it actually had value right now it could be acted upon by the businesses and, and communities who needed it, that it was specific enough, um, that it always talked about the human and the business side because the, the impact is felt in both areas and that it actually, you know, it had some navigational value to it. Everybody's got to maneuver right now. And uh, as Keith was saying, where, where you're moving 
you don't know one day to the next. So, um, so it had to have a lot of value. So criteria was set, uh, 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 experts were impaneled, uh, a production, uh, you know, cadence was set up. Um, it was very impressive, um, even though I, I, I get used to the, the way we can mobilize. Um, but it was it was very focused. And yes, content was at the heart of it. You know, Keith was mentioning earlier, digital content consumption is very high right now. People are hungry for information. They want it in the format that they they're on their devices all the time, as we all know. Um, so, you know, we wanted to, to make sure it was out there and then just really using all the data to track who's finding what what do we seem to need more of um, and what isn't isn't as helpful. So don't focus on there anymore. Move up. Keep keep going. One of the things that um, I I loved most about you was when you called me and you said, I, I'm going to do this new thing, but the only way we're going to do it is if we can track it. And yeah. <laughs> I, I love the fact that you're pushing for independent measurement across all of your content efforts. I think, I, you know, not enough marketers do that. And so I hope everyone follows your example. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, my, my, uh, anonymous poll won't be so anonymous. I pick technology, Rachel. I think uh, because for me right now, everything you do, you need to do it the best you can. You know, Christoph, you were just talking about that infinite content stream. There has to be a lot of technology behind that. There has to be great creativity behind it, but there also has to be data behind it. Um, because with that, you can do more great, great stuff. And you need to be able to say, look, I, I did this. I was just talking to um, our leadership team a little earlier today about Without a benchmark, how do you even know that what you did, you know, brought value? And you can choose all these things, but you got to set a level and and just keep deciding what you're gonna what you're gonna seek to beat. Um, so uh, so technology in the data camp is uh, is definitely on my mind. Well, a center has enough employees, so you can <laughs> the money for tech. That's right, more tech. We we got that too, but there's never enough of that. <laughs> So when we talked on the phone, you said something I loved about event marketing. And I, I want to ask you, you know, similar to, to SAP and literally every B2B marketer in the world, what are you thinking about events? Like, do you, do you miss them? Do you hope that they're going to come back uh, in full force in the same numbers as before? Or do you think uh, we're going to evolve in a different direction? Yeah, I think that um, I think people got really creative really quickly to to morph events to be virtual events, and that's great, and you'll learn a lot. But but as as we were saying yesterday, um, I was like, I think you need to Marie Kondo a little bit. Like, wh why were we really doing this anyway? Because when you go to even if you're just adapting, you ask yourself, was where was the value in that, and did that value last significantly after? The event and for some events and some brands and some business models, the answer is undeniably yes. But for others, you might have gotten in a little bit of a repetitive routine that you want to ask yourself. And it gives you a really good opportunity to put stuff to the side and have the freedom to not do it anymore or re-ask yourself what the business goal was and get to it in an entirely new way. And I think that's the the upside, a lot of people talk about that in your personal lives with what's going on right now and realizing things you had stopped doing or forgotten was important. It's the same thing with our with our day jobs. And if you can take a minute to look at that, you can put certain things aside and realize you, you didn't need them as much as you thought. Yeah, it's actually fascinating how much we didn't need things that we were completely convinced that we, we did. Um, I used to travel so much just for, you know, a couple of meetings. I'd go to Seattle for a couple of meetings and now I can talk to people from all over the world in a day and it's the new normal and I love it. You know, So yeah. I, I totally agree with that. 
Um, I want to also ask you a little bit about leadership. Um, we didn't talk too much about it today, but you, obviously you have so many different teams and people. As you said, uh, you know, Accenture has a lot of headcount. How are you keeping everyone mentally healthy, motivated, energized, focused, productive? Yeah, I think it's a big, the biggest part of brand management right now because your people are your brand and many of our, our businesses and the, the needs and the mental states and the, um, the environments that they're existing vary greatly. No two situations are the same. And if you're global, there's, everybody's in different phases of the crisis. Um, so we put a huge emphasis. In fact, that was my first project listening to Alicia earlier about, you know, what, what did you quickly scrap and say, here's the, the most important to-do list. The, the content part was easier. We had to think right away about our talent. What do our people need right now uh, to be successful? And we have a great group who said, you know, we set a brief. We have to support and enable our people no matter how diversified their needs are. So that was a whole internal content um, push, make sure people can connect, can share, can get the help they need, can express themselves in the way they need. And also a lot of tips. Like, I don't know how many of you have noticed, but uh, holding a meeting online with video, you have to use different skills. You have to remember to include people. You know, a lot of us might use uh, physical cues in the room to insert ourselves into the conversation. And if, if they're not on camera or they haven't engaged, or maybe I don't want to be on camera today. I don't feel like it. And someone says, hey, turn your camera on. And they don't know they just actually made you feel not like you wanted to feel at that moment. You didn't so, put makeup on that day. Well, yeah. <laughs> you, or you did, but you chewed it off as you stressed through your day and, you know, pushed your hair back 18 times. So, uh, so that was a huge part. I learned the most through that. I mean, I'm always fascinated by our industry content and our technology content, but I learned the most through the, the materials we made for our people. And then again, just listening and really learning um, what do people need and, and being committed to, to really hear it, not defend it, not, you know, but, but really hear it and, and, uh, and allow yourself to be informed by that and, and take action based on it. So the, the people side, and it changes on us, you know, I mean, the, they want to know you're taking care of them. They want to know you're taking care of the business. They're stressed. They're, so um, you can't, you have to have a little bit of a thick skin, but I think that um, the commitment to it is what matters most. Okay. I'm going to throw a hard question your way because uh -oh. you mentioned something that made me, made me realize I have to ask you this. Um, you just said, you know, the, the kind of balance between taking care of the people, taking care of the business uh, in an ideal world, they're one and the same thing. Uh, but, you know, we've talked to, a few different CMOs, a couple from, from the world of consulting who've said, you know, it's, it's criminal to spend money on marketing right now. We need to spend all of our money to, to keep people employed. Um, so, you know, how, how do you balance that, right? Like you, you want to be out there, you want to make sure there's business that you still, you know, have at the end of this or throughout this. Um, how, how do you think about that? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think I just saw a, a post about that today. I think it was Adam Grant um, posted something about that today. I think that um, any company that's not putting every resource and penny behind the things that are going to matter right now, those 90 days Keith was talking about, um, you know, I mean, everybody's got to make their own decisions. But yeah, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think it's that hard of a question, Nanda, because I think that that's where the focus is. The focus for everybody right now is the health of, of our company, the health of us as, a, as an entity and um, with a shared mission and a shared purpose. I think the more leaders reinforce that and are 
incredibly transparent about what it takes to get there, the better off the company will be. So I think communication and transparency is critical right now, um, even on the hard subjects. I like that. Thank you. Um, Final question to you. I'm curious, uh, you, you see a lot of businesses from across a lot of different industries just by the work that you guys do. I'm curious, what do you think are going to be some behaviors that have shifted so quickly but will stay the same even after the crisis in terms of the internal transformation that's happening across a lot of your customers? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that word normal. And it is it, the, the, the way you can become pacified by that word and the idea of that concept. I think, you know, the idea that you're going to have to constantly be agile and bob and weave to change and, you know, the role that, that being digital and flexible and elastic to a certain extent plays in that, I think that won't change. I think there was a feeling of, well, we can control this. We'll determine the pace and we'll figure it out. And we know from our research, lots of companies were already saying, okay, this is more perpetual and more um, constant than projects used to be in the good old days. But I think now there's going to be um, more of a constant focus of if this, can I, can my business operate? And so I think decisions around accelerating technology and, and digital will be, will always be seen through that lens because it'll be hard to ever to forget this. And obviously you said that you were going to invest more in technology. So there we go. <laughs> um, there's a question from the audience that Rachel just texted me. So I have to ask you, although it's a bit of a shameless plug, but uh, someone said, agree on the measurement front, but how do you trust any of the results that you're getting during these unprecedented times? Yeah. Um, it's, a, you know, it's exactly that. It's about setting benchmarks and it's about using, um, it's about using, seriously, and all, all uh, plugs aside, partners and measurement that you can say these are apples to apples and reduce it down. You don't have to, I, we were just talking today at a report that was pages upon pages upon pages, just reduce it down, set a few key benchmarks and decide we're going to stick to these KPIs and we're going to always measure them the exact same way with as little bias as you could possibly have. Um, and I think that's the that's the only way those are going to mean. And unless is is definitely more in that case when you're talking to leadership with a thousand decisions to make, we want to make it easy. I love that answer. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you. Great to have you on and to have you as a partner. Um, I know there's a lot of other questions here, um, so if you can stay on, we're going to switch back into more of a Q and A mode shortly. Um, Rachel, do you want to maybe do the quick results of the poll? Because I'm kind of dying to find out. And then I want to jump to our next speaker. Let's bring it up. Poll results. Oh, my God. Wow. Great time to be alive. And I know. We are in the right space. <laughs> this my is friend. awesome. Cool. Um, all right. Well, folks on the line, you plan to invest in more technology. Call us up. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's interesting, the agency bit. Um, and what that means, you know, I know we have- By the way, Andrew, Andrew, you know you're gonna get a question about that, so just yeah. get ready for it. <laughs> I was just gonna say, okay. I know we have the voice of an agency here. Yes. Not just an agency, a man who's made- You brought him on to traumatize him. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Okay, so um, Rachel, I wanna jump to our next speaker. Did you wanna say something? No? Okay, cool. Okay. Sounds good. So I wanna jump to our next speaker. Um, we had such an awesome prep call, um, and she's already shared a couple of really fascinating tidbits with us. Lena, welcome back. I actually wanted to 
start by asking you a question that I saw from the audience. Um, Elise said, Lena, what do you what do you do as patients are still sick? And even though they can see doctors in the same way, they still need to be educated on different medication um, to have impromptu conversations with HCP. Yes. Um, so I think, you know, just to answer the question briefly, so obviously, like I was mentioning before, the ecosystem in which we operate has changed. And so we had to, I think, align to a dynamic that was um, never seen before or, you know, predicted in terms of the healthcare ecosystem in and of itself. And so, you know, we do think, um, I think the biggest priority was, uh, and we can talk about, you know, more about the response of the company, but definitely it's not just around information only, but also supply of the medication itself, because there are a lot of people that are suffering from COVID, but there are also a lot of people that are suffering from COVID and other disease states. And there are people that just depend on medicines for other disease states that will continue to depend on medicines throughout the crisis. So part of that with the supply chain in and of itself, uh, in terms of information, it's actually, it's very accurate. There were two things that happened. On the healthcare professional side, we actually found out very quickly, you know, that type of communication um, was historically in pharma reliant on healthcare um, sales representatives type of interactions. And we heard very quickly from our customers and our healthcare professionals that, you know, this is not the time to have that type of, inter like a sales call type of interaction. So we pulled back and started engaging digitally in terms of support and just providing information when one and when needed. From a consumer perspective, which is the world I'm uh, closer to and where I operate, it's uh, exactly true with the question uh, stated, is you know, the first and foremost um, necessity is to make sure that actually the first one is that patients can get the medication. And there's a variety of initiatives that took place to make sure that happened, but also to make sure that the right information is there. But I will say for us, that's always has been the objective of the advertising is not just to drive conversion, but it's to really arm the consumer with the right information to make an informed choice to ask the doctor. We don't, you know, we don't really say go buy this medication, but go talk to your doctor about this medication. As you do, you should know the good things and the bad things, you know, that can happen as you take this medication. So in order to do that, all our websites during the crisis obviously remained up. Uh, as we were making cuts to media investment um, because of the ecosystem, ecosystem changes that I just mentioned before, one thing we never touched actually was paid search because um, it is almost like it's almost like an obligation as of a company when you have a product in market in the United States where you can talk to consumers um, on brand about that product that if somebody's searching for information, you should be popping up so that um, that information is readily available. So obviously all of our website reflect our labels and all those um, remained up with some drivers to it, you know, especially um, search. And then, you know, there were some content partnership that we kept. Um, where we really cut a lot of the um, investment as being in mass advertising because the mass advertising, you know, it's acquisition focus as part of the funnel, but it's also very much driven to generate growth from a financial perspective for the company and just generate mass demand. And we felt um, very much in line with the question, this was not the time to generate massive demand. This was the time to be there with the right information when people needed it. And so um, certain digital uh, channels and search specifically uh, remained in terms of, of investment and in other places we cut. Um, you're mentioning, sorry, Rachel, you go. Yeah, no, I have, a, I have a, this is a selfish question out of curiosity. You know, I do a lot of work in more of commodities and within e-com and 
this issue there is if the product is not available to the customer, they're so willing to switch to another label. And, you know, within your category, is, is there just pure brand loyalty or, because that would be the argument to keep mass advertising. And I just want to pick your brain in terms of how you think about competition, you know, especially during this time. Yeah. So there is there, so is, is the question, is there brand loyalty specifically or in general? Within yeah. This? And like, I, do consumers switch? Like, cause that would be the argument to like keep mass advertising maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you said if, in terms of, we don't need to drive demand, but the other element could be to protect from the competition taking market share. Yes. But, and that's where the mind twist happened for us because mm-hmm. those are all valid points. But remember in the crisis, everything was working. So like we were driving market share, we were thinking about competition as the crisis took place, both from a healthcare perspective. So actual health of people mm-hmm. as well as access to healthcare professional, we had to switch that. So I can't worry about the fact that my competitor will have a bigger share of voice mm-hmm. because the biggest preoccupation is, will people get their insulin? So is my, you know, is the supply chain actually going? And from an advertising perspective, it's actually the opposite. It's like, am I going to, let's just say brand preference, you know, yes, our advertising mm-hmm. in consumer marketing drives brand preference in the US. So through this crisis, if I continue to advertise it, I cannot worry about, will I drive more brand preference than my competitor? Because at this time, again, the ecosystem is working differently. So if I drive more brand preference, I'm driving more patients into doctor's offices that are closed. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's very true in regular times. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, like Alicia was, was mentioning a second ago, I think we're all, you know, we're all kind of forecasting the fact that there are no winners in Corona at the moment. There are no winners out of the COVID-19 crisis. And so it's, it's almost like we're postponing that problem. You know, when we come back on, do we have an eye on the competition? Absolutely. I mean, our media mix was optimized to the stent down mm-hmm. to what's with the competition as it relates to marginal ROI. So it was very much mm-hmm. a driven exercise to drive that information to patient that ultimately also drives branded requests. This was just not the time to do that. Yeah, Lena, you're speaking my language. And we did <laughs> um, Jeff Immelt on now like two months ago, which is crazy. And to your point, like no one's winning. He said, during this time, you get a pass or a fail. Yeah. Yeah. Pass, fail, test, t- test for leadership. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that definitely resonated as well. Um, Lina, I know when we were talking, you you mentioned some of the things that Eli Lilly is doing to help, uh, I think you called it, attack the pandemic. Um, and I just wanted you to share a couple of those because I know it made me hopeful and I hope it does that for everyone else listening. Yes, and I, I can share that, you know, certainly not just from an advertising perspective, which is more of my world and, and my role, but as an organization and, you know, kind of publicly what Luli has done and, you know, how we see it as internal leadership as well. So when the um, COVID crisis started, the company really had two main priorities. The first one was maintaining the supply chain of medication. We needed to get medication to 40 a thousand people, 40 million people that rely on our medicines. And, you know, throughout the crisis, we were able to do that. There were no manufacturing sites that closed. And, you know, we continue to supply medications to uh, hundreds of countries. 
But that was the first and foremost, we make medicine. We physically manufacture that. And so the first thing was, how do we continue to do that? And how do we continue to do that safely for our employees? So the second priority was keep the employees safe. And so I think as the crisis hit, that was um, almost overnight, the company as an enterprise went into um, really focusing on those two priorities. So um, the manufacturing lines were kept uh, alive and running. And at the same time, as I think the demand and supply and, um, and just the overall transaction of logistics across the country with transportation and beyond the country started to um, you know, run into some issues because of the COVID crisis, there were also other ways you know, where we employed um, private cargos or private planes in order to deliver medicine. And that, again, is not from an advertising perspective. That's more the company's position. Um, as the company had, you know, kind of phased those two priorities and uh, in a matter of, you know, for, for me in the United States, this felt like overnight, uh, pretty much we announced that we're all going to work from home. So 25, I think 25,000 people are now just working from home overnight with, you know, an infrastructure of, of tech that we never really tested for. And, you know, we just made it happen and, and it worked out really great. Um, as that happened, so our medic medicines were continued to be created and manufactured and delivered and employees were being kept safe. And the people that were having access to the site were just the people that needed to be there for the medicines to be produced. Then um, the company focused on two other priorities, which were attacking the pandemic and, um, and you know, interacting with our communities um, at, at a broader scale. So from attacking the pandemic perspective, you know, you guys may have seen it, it's a public announcement. We partnered with Abesolera uh, very quickly uh, for the production of an antibody and the research into an antibody um, that will be one of those that will be put into testing for, um, for vaccines. And the objective is, really to develop the science and to find the antibody. I am not a scientist by, by any means. So I, you know, I'm not the right person to speak to it, but I will say that again, this is not a game of um, you know, for profit. This is just a game of um, partnering with the right people and switching the focus into attacking the pandemic. And so I think the company saw that opportunity with Abizalera and that became a very quick um, partnership that was announced and it's currently um, operational. And then, you know, we, um, as a company, again, we are manufacturers of medicine, but we have a lot of scientists. And so, again, very quickly, the focus was switched to how do we support the community? How do we continue to attack the pandemic? At the beginning of the pandemic crisis, a lot of uh, the issues were around testing and the ability to test the scale. And when it became clear, I think that this is more of my personal perspective, you know, that from a federal level, there weren't going to be a cohesive way to do that, but it was really going to be reliant on state ability to test. Um, our scientists really turned the labs overnight to where they, they said, you know, I th we think we can do it. We think we can, you know, run uh, tests and we think we can um, do this here. And so our currently our corporate center has been turned into a drive-through testing facility where people of the state of Indiana can uh, go through and get swabbed and within their car and get tested and get results very quickly. And I think from a company perspective, I, one of the beautiful things to observe has been not just the scientific piece of this and how fast we switched our labs, because, you know, I mean, these are scientists that may devote their whole career to like a protein. And now all of a sudden they're looking at viruses and that's just not their training, but they're able to do that. But I think it's been fascinating how, you know, we quickly also created a platform for people to call in, book the test, get the results. And then you have thousands of Indianapolis-based Lilly employees that are doing their day-to-day -day job every day. They have like all of us. 
their families, their homeschooling, um, you know, meetings that now go from seven in the morning nonstop until 10 p.m. at night. And yet, you know, a lot of us are using their um, personal time to volunteer into the testing center. So we can all volunteer after we get trained to either be, you know, data intakers or take calls or book people or, you know, run the swabs. Uh, there's different roles that you can play. And I just think it's been a fantastic display of just acting with speed as well as just the, you know, what we call the team lily spirit. And then lastly, uh, in terms of, you know, interacting with our community and really being deep into the community. Obviously, we're supporting the state. Uh, we have a local campaign uh, about social distancing. Uh, but I think it's also been about, also back to that question, you know, it's about, yes, producing medicine, but also making it available to people. And so we launched, um, you know, we know insulin is a life-saving medication, and we, we manufacture uh, a lot of the insulin of the world. So First priority was make sure that continues to happen. But after that, we launched the insulin value program where if as people start to get impacted by unemployment and by the different phases of this crisis, then, you know, we can help providing insulin at uh, a $35 cost as well. So making it affordable to people. So you basically turned your office into a testing center and you turned your people into volunteers to help test, which is incredible. Are you using any of these stories for, you know, corporate brand? Uh, I understand that the performance side isn't really happening right now, but are you telling these stories to the world? You know, it's, uh, I think we're in the, we're, it, it's in the process. Um, I would say like historically, you know, every company has their culture and, and Lily has been, it continues to be, we are a, a fairly humble culture within Lily. So, um, and this, I'm gonna share my perspective. This is not the company's perspective. From my point of view as an advertiser, I think there's, um, there's, again, there's an opportunity not just to share what we're doing and just kind of pat ourselves on the back. There's an opportunity to really share the purpose of health and, and share the purpose of, you know, why we do what we do. And, um, you know, I think there are, I know there are, um, you know, efforts underway from our corporate communication colleagues um, to communicate, but I think at this moment, uh, the main priority is to give information. So perhaps a time will come and we'll say, here's what Lily did. But the main priority is we have so many programs that people don't take advantage of. And then we can foresee with just the numbers of unemployment going up uh, that they, people will need help to get their medications. And there are so many options that I think right now the main priority is really give that information versus broadcasting our efforts. So thank you so much, Lena. Really appreciate it. I hope, again, you can stay on if possible, because I want to take a couple of more questions at the end. Um, I'm really excited to welcome our next speaker, Andrew. Um, how are you? We haven't caught Good. up in forever. <laughs> it's been... Wow. Very nice to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Um, well, you are our token agency representative today. So uh, Rachel and I have a lot of questions for you. I would love to just hear, how's it been? And I know you also have a different perspective because you're not representing one of the big agencies. You're actually in, you know, in a smaller kind of nimbler situation. And I know you've been working towards basically putting together some of the best in class agency functionality. Um, so yeah, we'd love to hear how the crisis has unfolded from your perspective. Yeah, I think the honest answer is it's been bad. It's been bad for all agencies. This is a case where you have a capital V on your forehead, the vendor, and yep. ultimately the first cut. So across the board on the services side of the equation, it's been catastrophic. 
I have dear friends who have shut down their agencies, some who don't want it to be known, some who have been in the public eye. It's been devastating. Some have applied for PPP, but most of them have seen their revenue drop by 50 to 100%. And a few are simply not going on. Listen, it's not unique to the agency business. Disney just shut no. down Frozen, right? If Frozen is shutting down and not coming back, then a few agencies are going to shut down and not come back too. But it's been devastating. And that's the honest answer. However, I am bullish about the future because this is one of these Darwinian moments where the strong will survive. Mm. We will go into self-induced hibernation and we will reemerge and it will be a great time for brilliant, creative and strategic thinkers with great experience who can do things faster and better and for better value. I'm curious, you know, there's some brands that have continued to invest. There's some brands that have completely pulled back for a variety of reasons, some because they wanted to keep, you know, as many people employed as possible, others because they felt like the demand was already strong enough, so why would we invest? Um, But there's still some that are out there. So do you think that for those brands that are out there, have they been moving a lot of their agency work internally? And is that one of the factors as well? It's a really good question. I think you have to ask why they're out there. So does anyone want to hear from Brand X at this moment? If you have something authentic and credible, valuable and useful to say, absolutely. So that's the first question. Should you be communicating now? Well, what if you're, what if you're an insurance company and you're yeah, sort of like insurance? Yes, you should absolutely be communicating. You know, if, that, if that's the case, then I think you want to stay with your trusted agency partner because presumably you've hired them for a reason. You, you trust their opinion, their point of view, their expertise. It's not a time, in my humble opinion, to bring things in-house simply for cost-cutting benefit because that can ultimately bite you in the butt. If you have an internal team communicating to an incredibly um, anxious humanity, you might make the mistake of being out of tune. So this is a time for the professionals. Yeah. Do you think this has affected all agencies in the same way? Or do you think much bigger agencies have an advantage versus smaller? And then also I'm curious, creative versus media agencies, what your thoughts are? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think it's been a leveler across the board. So size is not in any way an advantage because with that comes cost. So just imagine yourself in a boardroom where you're going down a series of line items saying, how can we cut? Let's cut this big monthly retainer. But conversely, smaller firms work with smaller clients that are experiencing the same cuts, right, as a basic percentage. So across the board, bad, full stop. With regard to creative versus media, that's a very interesting question. I've had the privilege of being more on the creative side than the media side. Traditionally, we are little further up the food chain in terms of the relationship with the C-suite, if not in terms of the relationship with the budget. And there are big strategic questions being asked, questions about purpose. And I think that's the, um, in my humble opinion, the more important relationship right now, you can turn the media on at any point, but you really need to think about what you're putting into the pipe more than ever. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I'm curious though, you know, as, as, things do evolve and I'm, I'm, you know, equally bullish that in some ways this Arwinian stage is going to, to make the strong and the creative ones really kind of shine through. But I'm curious what happens, what happens next? Like what's the road ahead for, for agencies? And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but 
what are you thinking in terms of timeline? In terms of timeline, I'm living quarter to quarter, just to be completely okay. honest. And I don't have any answers that you haven't heard from your more esteemed guests. But the best thing to do right now is just to put your head down and think of this as a gift on some level for those who can. So, uh, large mammals hibernate. There's been a tradition there. Go into a little bit of hibernation, be reflective, and think about what your true value proposition is. How are you differentiated in the marketplace? I hate the term correction, but some people won't survive this. And, and those that don't survive, you could argue on some level, didn't survive for a reason. Others just have to hang in there for a little bit. It's going to be very tough for a quarter, maybe two quarters. Hopefully that's it. But then it could be a gold rush. And I'm betting on that. So I remain bullish, but hunkered down. If I can mix a bunch of metaphors. Just um, to chime in here, and I'm also looking at questions from the audience. While some companies might not survive, it means people lose their jobs. And so, you know, the advertising industry, especially the agency side, has always been such a breeding ground for young talent. When I graduated college, my first job was working at an agency. Um, it seems like there might be some young guests who are on the line. What's your advice for people either early in their career or just graduating and we're planning to get into the advertising industry? Sure. I never want to be cavalier about the human toll of this pandemic. It's devastating. And I can only say I came from publishing. So I had an experience where you saw an entire industry essentially be decimated. A lot of people lose jobs. It continues now as well. People are going to lose their jobs. They're losing their jobs everywhere. It's a terrible, horrible thing. The only way you can look at it is a chance to, again, reconsider why you do what you do. And if this is the right career for you, if you're unique and you're talented and you have a network and you have some patience and resilience, you will be reemployed at some point. It's just brutal for a few months, mm. but everything will be okay. I promise. That's very, in your soothing voice, it actually feels like it's- <laughs> I know. You should like be reading unemployment letters to me. <laughs> oh That's my next gig. Yeah. <laughs> um, one more question from the audience. Um, well, there's, there's a couple of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the question and then I'm, I'm not going to ask you to answer it, but I think it's funny. What do you think about Sir Martin publicly stating he will use this time to poach talent and scoop up distressed agencies? You don't have to answer it. But you know, he's a very smart man and, and it's a buyer's market. So God bless him for that. It, <laughs> anyone who's cutting checks, I'm a big fan of. This is true. I like that. Um, so do you think this time will accelerate a move one way or another towards integrated Marcom providers versus specialized, specialized services? Listen, I'm always a believer in the phrase one throat to choke. You're familiar with that horrible expression? It just, no. <laughs> I'm an immigrant, so I don't know. Okay, it, it what is it? One throat to choke. So let's just back up and look at this from a procurement perspective. Does it make sense to have six to 10 different agencies? On uh, I see. It's just impossible to manage. It's like herding cats. Should there be consolidation? Absolutely. Just from a structural perspective, it makes more sense. So inevitably, there's going to be consolidation. The question is, does consolidation lead to commodification? So I like the idea of elegance and bringing things together, but you really have to produce a fantastic integrated solution, or otherwise, it's just a go rodeo. 
And that's what you're trying to do at Plan A, right? That's exactly right. It's just one consolidated hub and a bunch of integrated spokes. I like that. Um, well, should we move back into Gridview? Because I want to ask a couple more questions. And I, I kind of want to hear what Lena has to say about everything that you just said, because obviously she's sitting on the other side of this as the chief media officer. Um, so, Tinoch, can you put us into Gridview? Um, and Lena, I'll start with you. Um, I realize we didn't ask you, you know, how, how are you guys thinking about your agency relationships during this time? I think, you know, right now, again, we're almost like in a whole halted um, position, like a lot of us. Um, I think there's some truth in what Andrew said around, you know, you choose your partners for a reason. I personally, um, I think personally for the agencies that I work with across the portfolio, um, probably have taken right before the crisis the opposite direction, meaning um, I've actually elevated the relationship. So uh, we had a lot of different agencies as I took over the media position and then started to work on the MarTech side of um, and just the overall end-to-end -end journey from our consumer perspective and more integrated uh, marketing and performance-driven marketing. The more agencies we're bringing on board, the more I think the model that was winning for us was exactly one of sort of like a um, almost like specialty agency that understood our business versus the advertising piece that then was able to bring in partner through other networks that to me were one seamless team. It didn't matter what agencies they were coming from. So I think first and foremost, the way um, we're looking at, and you know, we have now a very sizable advertising portfolio across uh, close to 20 brands. So, you know, it goes from very small digital brands all the way to full total mix for blockbusters, um, like the ones we have in the diabetes space or the migrant spaces that, you know, have a full channel mix. Um, I think it's, you know, it's very much switch for us. Uh, it's going to shift more and more towards partners that can understand the business first. So we're changing the relationship, even from traditional media agencies. We really um, elevated that relationship. First of all, I'm talking always at the holding group and not necessarily just at an agency by agency level. And that has changed a lot because it's very much, um, like Andrew was saying, it's a procurement type of discussion, but not just for cost savings. It's a really a strategic overview. If we are taking a portfolio view versus a brand by brand view, like we used to have, then I need a partner that can elevate the conversation as well. So we are elevating the agency relationship at the, at the group level, first of all, and that has had the advantage to, you know, even to the question you were asking me before around, you know, do we have corporate messages? Do we have corporate strategic point of view? Well, we can bring in partners and specialties from the group versus the, spe the specific agency. And then, uh, you know, it's really about, um, I would say two things for me. One is on the long run, you know, and those are the people that will survive for me. The model that will survive even the crisis is what are the people that at a C-suite level can understand the business speak the C-suite language and can translate advertising into business growth. That's what it boils down to because those people are my partners and those are the people that help me in those conversations. And those are the ones that survive, uh, survive on the long term for me. And where in those situations, the crisis doesn't impact. The second thing that I will say, and this is more on the creative side and it's my personal belief, is that we actually need creativity more than ever. We need it now more than we did before. And I agree, we need the experts and we don't need, um, you know, makeshift creativity done at home. This is not, you know, a home study project. And the reason why I say that because I see creativity in advertising as, you know, just 
the ability to give rise to emotions through the five senses. It's as simple as that. And not everybody knows how to do it. And I think when marketers and business people try to do that, it's a very dangerous exercise. It's like an engineer trying to play Beethoven. Can, it can work, but you know, it just feels different when it's you know, a world-renowned musician. And so I do think we need creativity more than ever because creativity is going to be the translation from where we need to get to, to what we feel today. And today we're all feeling a lot of grief and loss and uncertainty. What a brand will promise tomorrow will be only be able to be translatable by creativity and, and top-notch creativity. Then, you know, media plans, uh, performance-driven media, all of that is in place and is needed with a business mindset behind it. But we're going to need those translators. And I agree with you, Andrew, those people are the ones that will eventually find employment too, because it's art and, and we're going to need it. That's right. I feel so much more hopeful after Lena's response. <laughs> I want to high five everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm curious just to switch gears a little. This is, oh, sorry. Did someone want to jump in? Andrew, do you want to jump in? No, okay. I wanted to switch gears and, and do a quick, uh, simple question. Um, coming from a travel background, anonymous attendee says, Given the conversation just had about the new normal of web conferencing, does the panel foresee a long-term decline in business travel because we will start remotely connecting? And what I will add there is what happens to all the products and services that we buy and use as a result of that? Are you asking anyone specifically? specifically. That's the question specifically around business travel? Yes, around business travel in particular. I can say, I mean, I can say for us, I don't know about business travel specific. I mean, I'm, I miss the days of being able to be with people, <laughs> you know, in general, whether it's travel or, or in the office. But um, I do think there's, you know, for us, I can speak one of the weakness that we have from both a talent perspective, as well as just keeping our outlook fresh and up to date with outside of the industry. I think one of my biggest push prior to COVID has always been, you know, I don't measure ourselves with far my measure ourselves with other verticals because consumers' expectations are not established by a pharma company. They're established by the experiences that other brands create. So because of that, I think actually this has created an advantage if we don't let a good crisis go to waste internally. Meaning right now, overnight, we have realized we can not only work this way, but we can continue to move business. We can continue to actually be effective. We can continue to actually even connect in different parts of, you know, outside of pharma differently and more, more efficiently. So I think, you know, one of the biggest gaps that we have from a talent perspective was Eli Lilly and company has a long independent history of 146 years. It was funded, founded by Cornelia Ila Lilly in Indianapolis. So it's a mothership Indianapolis-based company. And I think as we, you know, went into more modern marketing and as, you know, different tech companies have brought so much to us, we have struggled not really leading into a remote way of, um, you know, building our talent. And so, for example, out of the four or five teams that I have within my organization, my media team is 50% based in New York, even though we're Indianapolis-based. And that has been, you know, kind of a different approach. But I think that we have proven now that we can do that differently. So I see this as a good outcome, possibly for us, that we're pretty rigid with location, the fact that we can now be open to different talent and, uh, you know, careers actually continue to develop outside of Indianapolis. From a business perspective, um, just knowing our culture from a business travel perspective, 
I think we're going to see some uh, questioning coming back. Like we're not going to get, I wouldn't see us giving back huge budget of travel just because COVID is done. A, you know, from all the data that I'm seeing, just, you know, healthcare wise and the science, I don't know that we'll be done until 2022, you know, for in terms of real, really be done, maybe. And so travel itself will look differently. But I just, just company perspective and just the OPEX management, budget management, I don't see us just going back and say, oh, now we can travel. Here's your budget the way it was before. Because I think at the same token, we have proven that maybe it's not always necessary. Okay, I have one more quick one for you. I know you're Italian. I'm Romanian. We like to kiss when we meet, yes. especially new people. Do you think the, the kiss comes back or not? In Italy? Yes. I think it will. I think it will. I, I, <laughs> see how you want. I think it'll be like a social bubble. Like I say, I can kiss 20 people. They're in my family, maybe 25 yeah. with friends. There'll be like a kissing tracing thing. This, there's no way. There's no way. <laughs> Same. Same in my country. <laughs> it's Rachel. my personal opinion. Yeah, I love that question. <laughs> uh, I'm a New York Jew. We we rarely kiss unless it's a bar mitzvah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, because we have Lena and Christoph here, final question. You know, way more forward looking. Let's say it's the year 2022, right? Hopefully, the world normalizes. What does product innovation and product development look like? since usually it's at least a two-year cycle, how are you thinking about the new products that you're potentially bringing to market that are two years out? Yeah, and, and maybe I can give that one a go. I think, you know, there's definitely, I think, uh, the way we look at it, I mean, even now, right, I mean, sourcing PPE, sourcing hand sanitizer, you need them now, you don't need them in three, four, five months. Um, I do think uh, for sure, uh, more of an open source innovation model is is where the future lies. If you think about you know traditional CPGs, typically do a lot of in-house development. Uh, if you look at a lot of the brands that are actually winning in the market, the more agile brands, uh, you know the the digital first brands, uh, indie brands, etc. They don't have massive in-house R&D departments, etc. I definitely think uh, if I look at the future and how we're looking at uh, developing product to meet consumer needs. It's definitely trying to find that right balance between products where you're truly going to differentiate yourself and those you might keep in house. Uh, but then products where you just need to fulfill the need of consumers now, here and now, and not tomorrow. And for those, you, you look more for external partnerships and more and more suppliers as I look around. Are, are, are developing that in-house R&D capability where then a myriad of companies can actually tap into, including ourselves. And, and that's where, if I look at some of the products we've brought to market in a matter of weeks, um, you know, sourcing them out of Asia or anywhere in the world, and as COVID kind of rolled across the world, we had to switch supply from Europe to Asia and back or, you know, whichever way, because you know, you, you want that flexibility in your supply chain to get the products that your customers uh, want and deserve. Love that. And Lena, what about for you? 
Well, for us, a, you know, a product development cycle, it's a little longer because it's 10 to 13 years, eight years, you know, because if we start from a molecule in phase one all the way to commercialization, it's a little bit longer. But I think it's actually similar in the sense that, you know, just as a company, historically, we are, we are starting already to move. We had moved prior, prior to the crisis to not just look in our own labs for molecules, but we will also look at partnerships. And so um, I think it's actually, it's been a little bit different to where we had, again, to put patient safety is, is first and, and paramount for us. And so as the crisis hit, you had to think about clinical trials that were in place in terms of, you know, those in reality happen with patients. And so how do we make sure that, or do we halt some of them as they, that would require patients to go into clinical sites to, you know, be seen or continue taking the medication. So I think, you know, it's, it goes back to the do good versus, versus growing question for us, you know, that was asked at the beginning. Um, our product cycle, it's a lot longer. So I don't think we have been impacted in that way um, because, you know, th this pause, it's, it's going to be like a matter of quarters difference versus, um, you know, on a much longer cycle. Um, but we will be, I think, looking at, um, you know, in our pipeline, what do we have that as we get to know, not us as a company, but us as a, the totality of science and humanity, as we get to know more and more about how this virus works, we may, you know, have something that, you know, may help with the fight to the pandemic. And I think uh, the one thing that has become an, um, evident, not just for Lilly, but for the totality of the pharmaceutical industry and the scientific community is that, you know, if you have something you put in the middle and you let everybody study it as well, because it's, we're all, we're really all attacking the pandemic. And so um, product cycle wise, I think we had a, a pretty long product to where we, we probably wouldn't have, you know, we don't have those big changes. Um, but definitely, I think like everybody else, pivoting and repivoting plans by the days. And then we're all taking a breath to where it's like now by the week instead of by the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to I want to make sure I ask Andrew one last question. I know we only have two minutes left, so we're going to have to make this short. And it's a really hard question, um, Andrew. What if if you had a minute, minute to say something to brand marketers out there um, from your perspective, having worked with so many different brands over the course of the last however many years it's been at Droga, now at Plan A. What's what's the advice you have, or what's the request, or what's the warning, or what what's the one thing you want to say? Ask people to look at what you're communicating before you communicate it. Be very, very careful. People are really upset. People are really suffering. The last thing you want to do is put your foot in your mouth because it's very hard to take it out. Got it. That's good advice. Thank you so much, Andrew. So, Rachel, I'm going to turn it over to you. I'll only say one thing, which is that next week is our final session of this webinar. Um, and we're going to share the sign-up link shortly in the chat. Um, Rachel, anything else you want to add or summarize before we end? No, I, I think today we had such a diverse group of speakers, um, but it's just evident that no matter what you're selling, we are all living by the day, according to Lena, maybe the week now, which is a little bit more optimistic. Uh, and that so much of our ability to navigate this situation is collaborating cross-functionally and elevating the right partners. Um, so with that, thank you everyone, especially Christoph. I think it's midnight, so I hope you go oh, to bed. You're a hero. <laughs> I need to serve a drink. I've been trying to make a drink for a while. <laughs> and, um, yeah, folks, tell all your friends. Next one's the last one for a little bit. Uh, and thank you for joining us.
Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Notch and Micmac Roundtable. We hope you enjoyed the episode and are staying safe and healthy. If you would like to learn more, please visit us at notch.com slash COVID. Next episode will be the 10th and final installment in our series of online roundtables about COVID-19. We hope you've enjoyed the conversations thus far. If you have any ideas for future guests or topics, please let us know by emailing onda at prosandcontent.co. And don't forget to review and subscribe. See you next time on Pros and Content.